don't aim to solve all the world's problems, but we do offer you peace of mind, hope, laughter, and ideas on how you can help improve circumstances and communities. Good change is for you. For us, we take to heart your concerns about anger, injustice, and helplessness, the pain that we each feel, and give you something better to witness, something better to believe in. In many ways, this podcast is the opposite of self-help. It's us help. We draw attention to kindness, to the better angels of our nature. We swap stories that bring smiles, deep breaths, inspiration, and ideas to help us evolve. We introduce you to people who are positively transforming lives, leaders of movements, or everyday heroes who are making change. Good change. Good change highlights the common ground we share, the unlimited positive impact of a single person, and the greater good. Welcome to Good Change, a podcast about making a world of difference. Please welcome your host and good change maker, Ken Streeter. Hi, this is Ken Streeter with the Good Change podcast, and we're super, super lucky, grateful, excited to have today's guest, Blake Spaulding is the founder, co-founder, and chef uh, and operator, co-operator of Hell's Backbone Grill and Farm, which is a fine dining establishment in uh, remote, remote Utah. Uh, Blake's background is one that is as diverse and interesting as they come. Uh, She's worked as a river guide. She's worked as a chef for adventure travel companies. Uh, and found her way to this little hamlet in Utah where she and her partner, Jen, opened up Hell's Backbone Grill and Farm now where they uh, grow their own, some of a lot of their own organic food. So welcome to the show, Blake. Thank you, Ken. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for asking me. You bet. And uh, how are things shaping up this summer? I know you had a tough summer last year with the COVID closed down, but are things looking better this summer? Yeah, I feel a tremendous amount of relief um, that we have the Biden administration and a more favorable political climate um, for me um, and probably all restaurateurs. That's going to be a, a really um, important support system right because on. there's support for small business now. Yep. Yeah, I, I'm picking up what you're putting down, and I agree completely. Um, one of the things that have recently happened was International Women's Day, and, and I know that you are a, a, a standard in a way, a role model, a mentor for women who uh, have, have long sought um, uh, creating their own destiny, being a successful entrepreneur, whatever. And so I, the question I have right off the bat is, um, uh, how far have women come in your lifetime? Ooh, not far enough, you know. I mean, I I turned 57 in February, and this is something I think about quite a lot, um, you know, especially because I've worked, most of my life I've worked in sort of male-dominated fields, whether mm. it was, um, you know, adventure travel and, you know, on-river work or um, in restaurants. And... Um, you know, I feel like we we sort of take one step forward and take six giant steps backwards. And that's painful to see, you know, and certainly this last four years um, under the Trump administration, it was very excruciating to be, you know, 
um, in to watch sort of the way that administration and kind of the GOP relates to um, women and women's rights and free agency. And it was very disturbing. You know, it definitely kicked a lot of us into high gear. But it also, for me, was kind of weirdly traumatic. So I think, you know, there's a little bit of, um, there's a little bit of forward progress, but we have a very long way to go so if we're, in terms of gender parity and particularly um, for women of color, you know, yeah. at least I, I am white, a white woman. So I have, you know, I have race privilege anyway. Yeah. So, so if a hundred is perfect in terms of women and men uh, having equal opportunities, equal compensation, equal regard, uh, and zero is the exact opposite of that. Where are we today? Oof, boy. Mm, I don't know, 37? Wow, one third of the way. Yeah. I mean, it's different for different places. You know, I live in a, a very patriarchal state. I chose to live and build my business and career in Utah. Um, which is a red state. And it's also a state that is heavily influenced by the Mormon faith, which is a particularly patriarchal religious structure. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I don't know, maybe if I lived in New York City or something, I would, I would have a different ratio. But I think... I don't think I'm wrong. I think we're one third of the way there. I mean, women can have credit cards now mm. and women, but even like just an example. So I live in, as I say, rural Utah. My When I bought my house, my deed is made out to Blake Spaulding, an unmarried woman, which is wild, you know? Wow. Yeah. And that's that's real. That's just how it is here, you know? Like there's so many vestiges of hmm. kind of the gender inequity, at least I would say, you know, in this country very much, you know, and I think, I think when, you know, I'm, I'm a very political person, so hopefully you don't mind if I speak a little <laughs> bit politically, but I'm a huge, huge fan of Hillary Clinton. Mm-hmm. And so it was a very significant for me when she got the presidential nomination. And I was so excited to have that sort of, you know, to, to clear that milestone or hurdle of having our first ever woman president. And then instead to watch like the backlash of misogyny and like the way she was excoriated and the lies that were told and the, false narratives. It was devastating for Jen and I. Jen's my business partner, so I'll reference her a lot, I should say. She's my best friend and my, you know, extremely close business partner. We're not a couple. We're both single, Mm -hmm. hetero. But um, it is the case that um, we were pretty devastated by that, you know, and so there was a lot of joy and seeing um, Kamala Harris come into the vice presidency but you know the pain of of that that sort of off the charts misogyny was it cut deep for a feminist such as myself yeah so uh just as a side note my wife and i went and saw the dixie chicks uh when originally hillary Clinton was the subject of of one of their songs and then 
Barack Obama became the subject of one of their songs. And um, so I'm a, I'm a white dude in a, in a conservative town, 60 year old white guy. And I have no idea what it's like to um, suffer uh, at the hands of misogyny, but I can tell you that I felt that pain too. Um, and and the, the digression was, was not something that I wanted for our country. And then uh, of equal, if not greater importance was not something that I wanted for my daughters. Yeah, I love the chicks. They dropped the Dixie that's recently. That's right. That's right. Yeah. They're amazing and um yeah, I I've got a lot of a lot of joy out of listening to their music over the years. They're very fierce. I yeah. I relate to them. So, so that word is uh, apropos at this point, the word fierce. You described the town that you're living in now, Boulder, Utah, which I think has about 300 people uh, annual residents, year-round residents. Uh, how does a, a, a strong feminist, devout Buddhist um, figure that it's uh, a, a prudent thing to create a fine diner in a small town in conservative and, and a Mormon, largely Mormon run community? What did, I what don't did, really know how to even explain it, except I, only the best I can do is say it was kind of like a calling, hmm. you know, like there was a way that I, it wasn't, if I had considered the facts more deeply, it would have been, you know, not a, it wouldn't have seemed like a good idea, but there was just this feeling in me that it was what, what we needed to do. And so hmm. Jen and I had been working together doing um, catering and, um, doing some extreme catering for the Discovery Channel, um, like when they would go to, like in the early days of reality TV. And we work really well together. And I was married um, to a man at the time who had a connection with this town. Hmm. And so we came here because he wanted to have like our, you know, wedding celebration here. And when we got here, the people who have the building that we rent um, were, were like, you know, there's no restaurant here anymore. Would you want to just have the restaurant instead of renting it out for a wedding? And I, so I talked to Jen and I was like, it's kind of interesting. I was like, I have a really strong feeling that, that I'm supposed to do this. And would you do it with me? Cause I'm not going to do it without you. Mm. And she was like, she and her boyfriend had just broken up and she was thinking about moving somewhere anyway. So we packed up and moved here and um, we kind of started this restaurant with a year's free rent and 3000 borrowed dollars. Bootstraps. Yeah. And, you know, there was already tables and chairs and a stove and, you know, the basic bare bones of it. And, um, yeah, we planted a garden and got busy with it. And, you know, I don't, I hadn't spent very much time in Utah. So I had ideas about it. When we arrived here, what was really interesting was that, you know, mostly the Mormon rancher population was really welcoming and kind to us. Mm -hmm. It was more the sort of people who moved here because of Y2K, like the preppers and um, the people who maybe in some ways were more ideologically aligned with Jen and I, those people were not as welcoming. And so that was a big surprise. 
So, so um, how, how did you, how did you build bridges? Even if, even if the, the long-term towns people there, the ranch people there were, were somewhat welcoming or quite welcoming, there still had to be some bridge building given the religious difference, given you know, two women, given uh, your strong environmental biases. Um, how, how did you, how did you build some bridges? Well, I grew up um, underprivileged, poor. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so I started working really young. Like I, I had my first job when I was eight years old. And then first job in a restaurant around when I was around 12. And so I, um, one of the first things we did was, you know, any of the children in town that wanted that were of legal age to work and that wanted to work, we um, encouraged them to come and and we taught them skills. And there were a lot of kids of the ranching families that worked for us and mm-hmm. we paid them well and we cared for them, like deeply loved them and, you know, and taught them and helped them go to college and things like that. And so I think that was a major slow bridge, but you know, that was definitely very intentional for me. Um, it's not always easiest to like employ young people, teenagers and such, but the kids here by and large were really hard workers because they grew up in ranching families and like that. And then, you know, we started, we hosted a lot of community events before we even opened the restaurant to the public, we did a, an open house where we made a lot of food and invited all the townspeople to come. And, um, and that was really neat. A lot of people came. We started doing a 4th of July, like Interdependence Day, we called it. Um, that explain was like, that. Yeah, explain that. That's yeah, a great so, phrase. So instead of it just being like patriotic for the country, it was more like building community. So we you know, we did a, a joint celebration with the the people who own the lodge hmm. that we're on the grounds of that was like a, a talent show and ice cream social. Mm-hmm. And Jen and I supplied all the ice cream and, you know, our crew would make ice cream sundaes for everyone. We haven't done it for the last few years for various reasons, but um, now the town itself has kind of picked up the the whole 4th of July celebration and that's great. And so we support them in that, but things like that. And we always host an Easter egg hunt and make muffins and cookies and invite all the local kids. And, you know, we've, we've tried to be good citizens. You know, there was, we had a really good run of a lot of years of like feeling like we had, um, you know, really, I don't know, it's a little tender, like that we had made real inroads and sort of built relationships, you know, and then unfortunately, with Trump's election, you know, the polarization of that affected the whole country, deeply divided our community as well. And, you know, subsequent to that, or part of that was that, you know, we would have never chosen to move to Boulder and start our business here were it not for the declaration of Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument, which was established by President Clinton in 1996. And then we came here 
and opened our restaurant in 2000. And so then in shortly after Trump was uh, elected, he, with the, um, with the blessing and encouragement of the Utah governor and Utah delegation, mm -hmm. uh, cut Grand Staircase by half with the express intent to give it over to extractive industry. And at that time, you know, I mean, basically the day after Trump got elected, I, I knew what was going to happen. So I resigned off of all the boards I was sitting on and things like that. And, you know, told Jen and our staff that my job was going to change and that I was going to need to fight for the monument. Mm. And so I did, but it was, it was at, you know, it, it was kind of at great personal cost in a lot of ways. Mm. Like there's people now in town that I think historically liked me that don't like me anymore, <laughs> you know, which is a bummer and it's not what I wanted, but also in the larger scale of things for me, you know, there was, <clears throat> there was a article that got written that was pretty amazing. You know, I've, I've been long, a long uh, time fan of long form journalism. That's mainly what I read. Mm -hmm. And so of course I subscribed to the New Yorker Yeah, and we, were the feature of a of a very long form article by the inimitable Catherine Schultz in 2018 in the New Yorker, which was so wild. Like in my wildest life imaginings, it would have never occurred to me to think that I would be in an article in the New Yorker uh -huh. under any circumstances. But there we were, and so my point, I guess, is that somebody in town, and I might. I have some ideas about who it might have been like took the cover page of that and Xeroxed a bunch of copies and wrote, if you really cared about Boulder, you'd keep it a secret and posted it all over town, like mm -hmm. kind of, and um, I thought about that a lot and, you know, in a certain way, this person had a point and the point is really, I'm here for the land and the wilderness, and that's why I moved here. I wouldn't have chosen to move to Boulder were it not for the monument. So I do love my community, and I love living here, and there's a lot of really extraordinary people here and compelling reasons to live in Boulder. But, you know, in the final analysis, the real reason I'm here is for the wilderness. And so keeping the wild places intact and safe is uh, my top priority. And, you know, so people will come at me with like, oh, well, then why do you publicize it and this and that? And it's, I, I don't really think that that's what we're doing. Like in my mind, just sort of like when you take uh, a group of 20 people down the Colorado River on a Grand Canyon River trip, you know, yes, you are impacting that place because there's more people walking around. But I would argue that humans really need to understand how critical um, wild places are mm -hmm. in order for them to relate to them in such a way that they'll prioritize their protection. And so the sort of the hidden agenda, if you will, of the restaurant always was to open people's hearts and minds to the inherent value of a wild place. Mm -hmm. And, and, and for that to happen there, 
you know, our, our idea was to kind of create a warm hearth that people could gather around metaphorically mm. as they, you know, get ready to go out and have a genuine wilderness experience and then a warm hearth metaphorically to return to afterwards to tell their story. And that really has been our kind of business model, you know, along with sort of like a, a really genuine sense of like radical hospitality mm. um, and care for our customers and care for the planet, care for the food we're serving, care for our employees. And, you know, so this whole thing of Trump effectively destroying the monument because a lot of people when they hear that he cut it by half they're like well half you know maybe it's still a million acres and maybe that's enough but the way they did it was extremely destructive because when clinton and bruce babbitt declared it they um they did it super intentionally it was really designated for science purposes hmm. and so it was contiguous to so much other protected land state parks national parks forest service on and on um, wilderness areas and the way the new monument was drawn um, was just three really distinct uh, island chunks of land that totaled still one million acres but we're not we're no longer contiguous to anything. And so the devastation potentially that was going to be wrought by this, um, this order was extremely significant. And, yeah. and it's, so that's why I had to go and fight. Yeah. So the, so the, if it's not contiguous, then you've got little islands of isolation, but all around it was slated to be or eligible to be mined or otherwise abused. Correct. Chained, you know, yeah. um, the juniper trees chained, like the original habitats destroyed. Yeah. Um, extractive industry, mining, certainly, but also fracking, all kinds of, all kinds of badness. Yeah. So, so an underlying goal of this podcast is to give people a sense of hope, uh, a chance to just <laughs> yeah. take a deep breath, um, something tangible for them to sink their teeth into in terms of good change. And then uh, in addition to that, uh, pearls of wisdom for people to uh, adopt into their own life uh, as anchors, maybe for lack of a better term, anchors or catalysts, uh, for them to take action, and and what I'm what I'm hearing you say in uh, in how you described coming to Boulder and then facing some of the discord and some of the challenges and having that amplified over the last few years, um, through it all, you stayed true to your beliefs, and those are beliefs that are uh, slanted towards, uh, geared towards, uh, driven by preservation, a warm hearth, which I love that idea, warm hearth for people to gather around and share experiences. So speak, speak to me a little bit, speak to us a little bit about the importance of, of just sticking to what matters to you as a foundation to change. Well, I guess what I would say is that really my core belief 
is that what is important is love. Mm. And so I think, you know, whatever you're doing, whether it's fighting for a piece of protected wilderness or a certain kind of animal that you feel really um, tenderly towards, or you're engaging in social justice work, you know, to really address inequity. I think if you're doing it, if you're coming at it from a place of like love, which mm-hmm. sounds really simple, but I, I think it's, it's really then the, that's what makes the work sustainable because love is the ultimate renewable resource, mm-hmm. you know, and energy that I think drives um, certainly humans, but probably animals too. So I think, you know, that trying to always err on the side of love and compassion and kind of steering away from fighting against what you hate mm. and instead fighting for what you love. And then the fight becomes enlivening and maybe it's not even a fight anymore. Maybe it's um, appropriate to think of it as 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 more love mm. you know and and love takes a lot of forms and you know certainly i've had a lot of anger about the destruction and those who will have the will to destroy the world eaters i would call them you know but i th- I think even that rage can be made holy if it's if it's coming from a place of of really deep abiding love mm-hmm. and compassion for the suffering of the voiceless. Does that make sense, Ken? It, it does. <laughs> it makes complete sense, and it's it's poetic. It not only makes sense; it's poetic. And I I, I hearken back to what you said earlier about when you came into town and offered the teenagers in the town work at, at the restaurant. And what, what crossed my mind when you said that was that you, were, you weren't only tending to their economics, to the financial situation, but you were tending to their hearts because you were giving them an opportunity to do something that otherwise would have never come their way. And, um, and so in, in a sense, that's the same thing as, as operating from a position of love as you, you, you reached out and tended to the hearts of the people in the community. And uh, even more so the kids in the community, which is a great way to anybody's heart and a great way to have anybody feel like you're driven by love. Well, and that's been really rewarding. Even there's one uh, young woman, she's not even that young anymore. She has three children. Mm-hmm but who started working with us when she was like 13 and she's now a manager for us. And, Mm. you know, she went away and went to school and, you know, married uh, another young man who also worked for us from town and they are ranchers here and I'm super close with their family, you know, and uh, a lot of the kids that worked here historically, you know, when they come back for family reunions and stuff, they'll come by and see us and bring their kids. And mm-hmm. it is, it is a really, you know, those long, I mean, that's the other thing I guess that I could say is like, it's very easy to look at sort of the problems of the world and think, oh, this is an impossible problem. And I think one of the important, important things is just slowly, slowly 
change happens, you know, and incremental change is really where, where things, where the, where the, the good stuff occurs, mm -hmm. you know, it's, if you try to tell yourself you have to make a difference like that and snap your fingers and it's, you've changed something, you're really going to feel frustrated. But I think like to pick something that you are passionate about and then think about how to incrementally change a broken system. We're all trapped in so many sick systems, you know, right now, you know, military industrial comp complex and, and sort of massive capitalism and um, racial and injustice and, and inequity. And um, all of these things conspire to strip us of our humanity and sort of even our sense of being able to do anything. And so we think if we take our cloth bags to the grocery store, maybe, you know, maybe we're making a difference, but really that's, there's almost like, and of course, always doing whatever you can to deepen your own sort of sense of self-respect, whether that's composting or recycling or cloth bags to the store, but understanding and kind of getting ourselves off the hook in a way as individuals, what we really have to fight is the enormous six systems that we're stuck in and then looking at incremental change and how to do that from where we are. And I would argue again, it starts with love and it's um, for me, like my great, the great love of my life is planet earth. You know, I, I love this planet. I'm a super duper terrestrial, you know? And so, you know, I, one of the sort of six systems that I see that we're trapped in, that's just starting to get some traction, but is the sort of human centric way of thinking of the world that everything that's here is for the commodification, pleasure, utilization, and, and use of for, for humans you know and i would argue that trees and streams and creeks and bees and bears they have they should have a right to exist in and of themselves and that you know that's the sick system that i've sort of decided to try to address in my work yeah. and obviously i'm not going to be able to solve that like there's not a chance but like, if you look at like the powerful work of some of the young people of today, like Greta Thunberg and Malala and, um, you know, uh, a young friend of mine named Robbie Bond who started Kids Speak for Parks. Mm. I think if you just pick something out of a sense of love and care and a wish to help and and just start talking about it and build kind of a... a use whatever your voice, use your voice in whatever way will carry, mm. you know, there's a great likelihood that there's a lot of other people that feel the same way as you that wanted someone to say, hey, let's think about this differently. What if, what if, what if we stopped cutting down old growth forests um, and decided that they had a, that they had a utility beyond beyond sort of extractive yeah. um, 
their extractable capacity, you know, and, and what we know now is everyone's all worried about climate crisis and we really need to be worried about climate crisis because climate crisis is quickly evolving into climate chaos. We know that we have like the world's best natural technology to address it and it's trees Mm -hmm. and that we're still cutting them down. That's not logical. So like figuring out that we're going to save and that's, you know, tangentially and not, but really my, I've worked and worked and worked to try to save Grand Staircase. It looks like now it's going to be saved. Right on, right on. Congratulations and great work. Thank you. Yeah. But the truth of the matter is that it's only saved for a minute because mm-hmm. if we don't get a handle on climate crisis, all those animals and trees are going to burn up anyway. Yeah. And so you know, I'm moving now my work, my scope of work. I'm like, well, you know, we need to save these large intact vast swaths of of public lands, not just for us so we can visit them, not just even for the honeybees that live out there, not for the mountain lions and, and like that, but really for the larger good of the planet, we need vast, vast intact swaths of of um land that haven't that won't that will get left alone because they're the lungs and the and the sort of holders of our biodiversity Mm -hmm. and and you're not you're not just uh, manifesting change through your activism in in the form of um communicating to to political leaders and making sure that uh, your voice is being heard on a national level, but you're also doing that with your restaurant operation with producing a significant amount of the food that you serve on your own locally and eliminating so much expense and so much environmental degradation of the supply chain. Yes. I mean, a huge, huge driver of climate crisis is and global warming is um, bad ag, you know, conventional they, we call it conventional, but really it's industrial. Mm. Um, food production is a nightmare. And the way we handle food waste is absolutely a nightmare, you know, in terms of creating harmful, um, having harmful s- side effects. And so regenerative, ag- regenerative agriculture is really the way we need to move into the future because it's, there are ways to grow food and to raise livestock that actually um, sequester carbon. And there, there's, you know, they're more labor intensive, but they, but like when we really look at the actual costs of, of food production, the cheap food is gonna be the death of us all one way or another. And so I'm really looking forward to, you know, there being some political support for the first time ever for small organic farms and regenerative regenerative agriculture operations. We've got to get a handle on the way we're producing food. And, you know, my real work, you know, for the last 20 years has been to try to just convince people to eat food that was grown in a thoughtful, loving, and not, not destructive way. And the truth of the matter is if you grow food in poisons, you're ingesting poisons. You cannot wash them off. That's like not a logical thing. Like, 
every, all of us did those experiments when we were in first grade where you put you know blue food dye in a yeah. thing of water and you put a carnation in there and you come back the next morning and voila your carnation is turned blue that's how a cauliflower is too if you grow it in poison it's got poison in it and so you know everyone needs to really think about prioritizing um, food that was grown in a in a clean way because as animals we bioaccumulate everything that we eat so if you're eating food that's grown in poison you know it's why we have such a you know horrendous problem in our country with autoimmune disorders and cancers and things like diabetes and all of these illnesses that can be traced back to what we are consuming yeah. it's very sad and we've been sold a lot of lies yeah. and like I cannot wait for the day when we look back in time and are like, can you believe that people used to grow food with poison and think it was a good idea? Like yeah. it's so illogical. I just can't even. So yeah. Anyway, my work has been trying to educate people about that and to show that it can be done. Cause when Jen and I started this restaurant, there were only a handful of restaurants in America, mostly run by women that were even um, that we're doing anything um, with organic food. Like it was sort of common thought back and, then that and what, it was what, impossible. What year was that? 2000. So you know, when we, it was like Alice Waters in Berkeley yeah. and Nora Poulian in DC and Piper Odessa and, you know, a few other places. So but in 20 mostly, years, 20 years, there's been a significant shift uh, away from uh, the use, and obviously it's not a great enough shift yet, but away from the use of poison foods to more organically grown foods and or locally go grown organic foods. Yeah, and it's and all super tied in with issues of race and social mm -hmm. justice and equity because what, you know, unfortunately our paradigm is super inverted. So the large destructive poison growing mm -hmm. food makers of the world get massive subsidies to grow food that's poisoning the humans and the planet and then small organic farms have these incredible obstacles no no financial support from the government you know and we really need to flip that narrative we need to change that um, so, and yeah. i I know a lot of people are working on it. So I think there, there as an example, and it's definitely not apples to apples, but um, with the with the shutdown with COVID uh, significantly impacting uh, cinemas and live entertainment venues, a friend of mine owns one of the larger independent um, movie cinema chains in the country, and but it's still microscopic compared to the big ones like Regal. Um, but Congress recently passed, and I don't think it's been funded yet, but it recently passed as, as part of the, the aid bill, um, funds directed specifically at small entertainment venues, whether it's a cinema or a live place, because of the impact that they felt and their inability to sustain throughout this whole thing because they didn't have millions or billions in reserve. And so maybe, just maybe, and you talked a little bit earlier about the fact that organic farms may be getting some treatment, uh, some positive treatment from the federal uh, agencies. Uh, maybe, maybe, we're, maybe we're headed in the right direction. 
I think we are, but one thing I'll say that I've learned in the last four years is that the only way we're going to change anything is by really, really shoring up our democracy. Mm. And so we have to make it to where um, people like my indigenous friends are able to vote. And, you know, I've worked with some nonprofits that are really working on that, but, you know, sadly, tragically, horrendously, you know, the marginalized populations of our country have largely been marginalized by a GOP that doesn't want them to vote because they don't get, they don't vote for them. And so gerrymandering and, you know, on and on and on, as you probably know from the news, just like in the last week, over 200 bills have been filed by Republican um, senators and and Congress people to try to reduce access to ballots. Crazy. It is. It's so rough. But, you know, so that's the real thing is like, I cannot overstate the importance of getting people engaged in the political process teaching people about how it works and getting getting people out to vote and you know shoring up our electoral process because everything i mean what what i remember you know the day after the election in 2016 all my employees sort of marching into the restaurant in tears and like a lot of them didn't choose to vote they thought it didn't matter their vote and I said, you're about to learn an incredibly painful lesson that there's literally nothing that matters to you that can't be made political, that mm-hmm. won't be politicized. Right. Your internet, your your rights to your body, your sexuality, the food you eat, the air you breathe, the water you drink, the very ground you stand on, everything is up for grabs. Mm. And we saw how close we came to losing everything, you know, yeah. and so really whatever you love, make sure you're backing it up with registering people to vote. So along those lines, that's great advice. And, and here's a question for you. Let's say that uh, you had an opportunity uh, in your restaurant uh, to have the leadership, the national leadership, federal leadership of the Republican party, two or three senators or, or representatives, and then uh, on this other side of the table, metaphorically, and maybe literally, literally would be two or three members of the democratic leadership group. And then um, as a, as a practicing Buddhist, I'm wondering if, if Buddha were to walk in and sit down and break bread with these folks, what do you, what do you think he would say? I think he'd give the GOP a really big scolding. Hmm. And why? Because, uh, because their, their, their policies have changed and they are, they're not based on loving kindness they're not based on the teachings of Christ. They're not based on, on good heart. You know, they're very, it's, they've, they've morphed into something incredibly cruel and cruelty is a a Mm non-starter with the Buddha. So I think maybe I can't really say that I could speak for the Buddha, Mm -hmm. but I think he would ask them, I mean, gosh, that is a hard one, Ken. I mean, the sad thing is like, really hate just creates more hate. And so they're in a very bad death spiral right now Mm -hmm. with that, you know, hating on, you know, hating people of color, hating, you know, women with any political agency, hating, you know, I, 
I don't really know what to make of it. So I guess I couldn't say what the Buddha would say. Maybe he would give them a teaching on karma cause and effect in a way that would frighten them. And what would Maybe, that look like? What would that be? Um, it would be like, you know, if you plant seeds of hate, you're going to grow a hate mm. tree. Mm. If you plant seeds of love, you're going to grow a seed. I mean, I guess I would say that's like maybe a, to go all the way back to what I was saying. If you're fighting against what you hate rather than fighting for what you love, yeah. there's a really qualitative difference. So the idea of karma cause and effect is not like there's some outer judge and jury that's watching you that's going to you know give you a a failing grade and cause you a consequence. It's that it it plants your the own your habits in your own psyche. Mm -hmm. So if you're planting seeds of goodness and love, you're going to bear a goodness and love tree. If you're planting seeds of cruelty and bullying and hatred, you're going to grow a tree that's going to give you a lot more bullying, cruelty and hatred. Yeah, you fruits. know that that uh, that takes me back to the to the comment or the question or the idea that. Um, uh, people really want something to sink their teeth into in terms of how they can uh, manifest change or how they see change happening. And uh, we, you've, you've, you've repeated this theme several beautiful times, and that is simply um, come at it from love. And, and maybe a cornerstone shift in behavior for all of us uh, would be just that, is to, if you're given an opportunity to trust instead of fear, if you're given an opportunity to uh, share instead of keep, um, always err on the side of trust and love. Yeah, and that doesn't mean you're not going to get your ass kicked. Yeah, right, right. You know, but really, like, at the end of the day, it's better to keep planting seeds of love than to stop planting them because somebody was awful to you, yeah. you know? And I think that's that's the thing is, like, we don't know what's going to happen. You know, there's a lot of dire predictions right now about, you know, everything, right? Mm. And and what I would say is I really have a lot of faith in the goodness of humans. I have a lot of faith in the wisdom and sort of uh, just extraordinary system that is our planet. You know, and I would like us to stop. I would like us to find a way out of all of the sort of sick systems that are keeping us stuck in these cycles of of abuse and war and um, inequity. And and I I think every every you know second you close your eyes and you open them and the whole world's changed. Yeah, it's so. Somebody fast. was born and somebody died and something extraordinary just happened and someone fell in love in that moment and anything can happen. And so, you know, I have this amazing friend who um, you asked me in an email, like what book, what, you know, and I, I couldn't really think cause I read a lot and, but I, I have some amazing women friends that I, I take a lot of uh, inspiration from and one of them is this woman, Rebecca Solnit, who is just a brilliant mind. And she and I have become quite close. And her thing that she talks about that I just love is that, you know, hope is not a passive thing. Like it's really, 
It's a, it's a practice, it's a discipline. And it's tethered and sort of shored up by action. So if you can do things in your life, whatever it is that give you a sense of hope, which she, she would argue, and I agree, is really, really different from optimism. Like, so optimism is sort of saying, like, everything's going to be fine, so I don't have to do much. Yeah. Like, pessimism says nothing's going to work, so I give up and I'm just going to, you know, live on Cheetos and binge watch Netflix. Uh-huh. Hope is an action. It's something, it's a verb. It's something that we engage in with, but it's it's tethered to our our ability to actually act, you know? Mm -hmm. So whatever we can do to deepen our own sense of self-respect and really ask ourselves that question, where, where could I deepen my own sense of self-respect? What would, what could I do? And how can I help someone else? You know, whether it's honeybees, if that's your thing, or it's beavers or it's dolphins or it's, um, you know, poor, you know, under children, underprivileged inner city kids that need, uh, need education. There's so much, the world, the needs of the world are great. And then figuring out where that need and our own sense of, uh, well-being and kind of, yeah, self-respect and hope can, can dovetail. That's how, how we can change the world. Um, wow. And we can do it in very small ways that can turn into big things. Mm-hmm. So speaking of great books, and I've read a couple of Rebecca Solnit's book and love uh, that she writes about the, the hurricane in New Orleans and about the, the perceptions that we were fed versus the reality on the ground and um, coming, coming to situations like that with uh, a clear vision without bias and then infusing them with hope. Um, it makes all the difference in the world. But speaking of good books, I've got one of yours right here. Uh, and I want to talk to you a little bit about recipes, but this, there's a, there, in the introduction, there's Terry Tempest Williams writes about the importance of, of uh, coming, coming to a situation with the intention of creating beauty. And uh, I get the sense from what you've done, you, what you and Jen have done that, that was a cornerstone, and based on this conversation, obviously that supports that. That was a cornerstone to uh, building your place. And I just wanted to uh, read a couple of menu items that clearly are a product of creativity and love and a desire for people to get together and really enjoy the, each other's company while consuming phenomenal food. So the, the one that caught my eye right off the bat was spicy cowgirl chipotle meatloaf, which if I could have a plate of that right now, that would be fantastic. Uh, and then cup of three sisters pasoli. Uh, there's the red chili beef brisket tamales. I mean, uh, how do you, how do you, uh, I would get so, so fat if I worked at this restaurant. So, no, you uh, wouldn't because uh, our food is nutrient dense. Okay. What does that mean? Exactly. <laughs> well, it just means that it's, it's available to your system to nourish you. Hmm. A lot of food in our society is, you know, just empty of devoid of actual nutrients. So what makes people generally fat is 
is empty calories, not nutrient-dense food. So you'd be fine. Okay. And then uh, along those <laughs> lines, I'm happy to hear that because uh, uh, I'm actually trying to lose weight. And uh, I mean, I've read about the importance of nutrient-dense foods, uh, and I'm trying to get rid of those that aren't. But Talk to me just a little bit for a few minutes here about what it's like to run a world-class diner that is clearly a labor of love with a team that is supported and encouraged um, and to have a, a, essentially a lifelong partner that has helped create this amazing place, thinking of Terry Tempest Williams, that was created with the intention of, of bringing more beauty into the world. Uh, just on a on a daily basis, um, how are you most rewarded? How are you most rewarded from your operation? Yeah, I mean, last year was so hard because of the pandemic that I'm still like kind of trying to process everything that happened. But I think for Jen and I, you know, our business model was always like kind of hilariously like aggressive hospitality. Like we both traveled a lot in our youth, you know, separately. We we met, you know, we've worked together now for probably like 23 years. Mm. So not quite a lifelong business partner, but. A long time. But a long time, yeah. And so one of the things that's most rewarding for me is that relationship. Like Jen is just a really brilliant, creative, funny, probably one of the smartest humans I've ever met and super hardworking. And so I'm very inspired by her. And our work relationship is, is we're really fortunate, you know, like we're, we just really love to work together. And it's that I love making people happy. I love nourishing people. And, you know, I, I really do think there's a tremendous value in helping people come to a place and have a genuine wilderness experience. Wow. The more sort of ramped up and fast paced our life has been and, you know, everything changed with the pandemic. I think a lot of people had a lot more time for self-reflection mm -hmm. um, than, but, you know, we're all tethered to our phones and to our devices. And from a Buddhist vantage point is how, how can I be of benefit? Mm -hmm. You know, like how do I use my precious human rebirth to to be of benefit in this world and to help alleviate suffering and create happiness you know and so for me it's landed with this crazy madcap you know fever dream of a restaurant which you know is is an extraordinarily busy place we we do a huge volume of business and it didn't used to be like that and so it's also always changing and so that, in a way, keeps us too. Is you know, just we're always trying to figure out how to do it better and how to do you know, have it be less effort and more joy. Yeah. And I really treasure the relationships with our team. You know, a lot of our staff have worked for us for a really long time, and so there's a very much of a kind of a built-in community. I don't really like to say it's like a family because it's kind of different than that. But there's, there's, we care for one another, you know, we're there for each other in a way that 
you know, maybe is even more than what a lot of families can do. Yeah. We choose to live in this community. We choose to work together. And those relationships are really significant. And I love that. And that may be a great spot to leave because if if that can ripple out, if that can mushroom out, if that can just evolve uh, beyond a restaurant wall, beyond a community, beyond a region, out to a state and then nation and world, um, caring for each other, tending to each other and, and producing nourishing and replenishing uh, environments is about as good as it could get. And so I really want to say thank you. And any last uh, words of wisdom or reflections or recommendations for us? I don't know. I think, you know, this last year with the pandemic has given us all time to really, uh, yeah, take a pause and kind of get off that spinning wheel that we've all created. And I think moving out of this time, out of this limbic space into a more thoughtful, intentional, how do I want to use my remaining days on this planet? I think really giving yourself the time and the permission to, to engage with that kind of open hearted question, mm. how do I want to show up for what's coming? And we do have an opportunity in these this time to make real change and find something and sink your teeth in run for an off run for office or mm. you know join a nonprofit or start your own um, campaign to to address some inequity that you see in society and I think it's it's hard but I think we all have we all have something we love enough to fight for it mm. so fight for what you love and Let's, let's save this planet. Right on. Well, I've loved this hour. I, I'm sure our viewers and listeners will glean inspiration and hope and ideas to take out into the world in order to make their communities better. Uh, I salute you and Jen for what you built. Um, my hat goes off to you for your staunch environmental work and uh, look forward to another conversation with you. Thank you so much, Ken. I'm hugging you from across the miles. Right back at you. Thank you very much. Thank you. With every show, we ask our guests to share a video of them doing something fun. One of their favorite songs, a few lines from a book they enjoyed, or a scene from a great movie. Something that matches their hopes, dreams, and good work. And then we give this to you. Because laughter and beauty soothes, heals, and changes us. You can find and unwrap this gift on any of our social media sites. Thank you for participating in this podcast. Until next time, keep an eye out for change. Good change. And join our movement at kenstreeter.com.